Hello and welcome to the EMBR 203 Knowledge, Ethics, and Environment podcast. Uh, here we are with week four. Uh, our question today is, what is animal personhood? <clears throat> now before we get to it, uh, I'd just like to begin with a little bit of housekeeping, which is uh, to remind you all to get started on your papers. Consider this a friendly nudge in that direction if you haven't begun yet. Uh, the assignment involves choosing a reading from week two, three, or four. You are allowed to choose one of the readings from the Boyd book. One chapter can be counted as a reading. Uh, I don't recommend that you take a short one though, because the more the lengthier the the reading, the more you'll have to work with. Um, and the basic idea of the assignment, just as a quick reminder, is that you're going to both write a, a summary of the key points of the text, kind of like what you've been doing with the weekly reading questions, but in a more developed form. And then you're also going to explain what the author is arguing in the work of the text. So not just the summary of what happens in the text, but what is the main argument of the text. And you should be using quotations from the reading in order to help illustrate uh, and support the kinds of claims that you make in the paper. So I'm bringing this up to you now because we will be doing a workshop on the Wednesday, October 7th class. So not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. Uh, and it would be great to bring a draft. If you have a draft, you'll be able to participate in the workshop. Students uh, will be able to read each other's drafts to share, get feedback, and improve their submission for me. So that's the idea. Just a nudge there. Uh, and I think at this point we're ready to return to the question of the day, which is, what is animal personhood? Okay, so I'd like to begin our work today by thinking about uh, a key concept. This idea that we started to explore last week in week three of legal personhood. So Boyd gives us a definition in our reading uh, this week in chapter four that a legal person is an entity to which the law grants specific rights. So we'll remember a legal person is not necessarily exclusively a human being. In fact, there were some human beings who were not afforded legal personhood um, until there were uh, legal challenges to, to change that and extend um, those rights. To, to, to fully to humans, but also there are legal persons who are not human at all, such as corporations, municipalities, uh, and we, we talked about that a little bit last week. But I think it's important to come back to that idea uh, because for chapter four, we're still thinking about um, legal personhood but we're thinking about it in relation to other possibilities. Now in chapter four, we have um, a quote provided by a law professor who makes the case that, quote, if animals are not mere things, if they have moral value, we cannot justify eating, wearing, or using them. This is uh, Francione. And he goes on to say, all sentient beings should have at least one right 
the right not to be treated as property. So this is an important argument, and it's certainly one uh, that Boyd explores well in the chapter. But I just want to point out that it's also a culturally positioned argument. And so we do well to remember that there are ways of engaging with the bodies of animals, animal persons, that can both justify eating them or otherwise using them, but that would also never consider those bodies as property as they are treated in the Western sense, for example. So this argument that Francione uh, is making is one that is positioned within that Western tradition um, where the the eating of animals or or wearing, for example, um, is is kind of held in in total absolute opposition to uh, to having respect and and valuing the intrinsic value of animal life. And so, like I say, that's um, it's an important argument but it is also a culturally positioned one. And so what I'd like to do at this point is turn to uh, the reading by Robinson in order to take a look at another cultural perspective that can help us understand um, other ways of understanding animal personhood. Margaret Robinson, the author of Animal Personhood in Mi'kmaq Perspective, is a Mi'kmaq feminist scholar with a PhD in theology um, from the University of Toronto. I think there are several uh, noteworthy contributions uh, from this paper. For one thing, I think it's a very clear description and reflection on the concept of animal personhood in contemporary Mi'kmaq thought. And while it traces important patterns of values and ways of being, it does not gloss over difference or homogenize diversity in perspectives on the issue. And in fact, one of the first points that, uh, that Robinson makes in this paper is that there is no view on animals that is shared by all Indigenous people. And so she's talking across Indigenous communities, but also within Mi'kmaq, there may well be uh, differences. People have different ways of relating. And so the thing that I find that she does so successfully here in this work is, is show that these values are clearly being negotiated, they're being interpreted, they're being carried forward in different ways. It's not some kind of strict rule book of tradition that's handed down in absolute terms. What we see instead is a living ethics that is recast in all kinds of new contexts. So what does it mean for a Mi'kmaq woman to be living in cities, to be uh, a consumer of food rather than a provider of food, to be living on other indigenous persons' territories rather than her own, for example. These are all factors that inform her thinking about animal personhood. Robinson notes that Mi'kmaq philosophical and ethical traditions frame our relationship with animals as one of dependence and friendship. So that's a kind of broad casting 
and it's a core value. But as I mentioned, uh, it's something that is made sense of by particular people in particular contexts. And it's really, um, it's really powerful to see that play out. She goes on to explain that the Mi'kmaq attitudes toward animals have been described as a mixture of kinship, awe, and the pragmatic. So this is, um, this is a different kind of thinking than the quote I read to you earlier, where if you, if you extend sentience, uh, an intrinsic value to animals, then you can't uh, use them. I'm putting air quotes. <laughs> it's hard to do that on a podcast, but uh, I got air quotes around there. Um, and so this is something. This is something different. Robinson has this wonderful quote that she takes from Couture, uh, uh, another Indigenous thinker, that everything is alive. And we are all related. And I think this is a really central principle um, in many indigenous thought traditions. Um, and it's very helpful for unpacking the concept of animal personhood, uh, as we will continue to do uh, today. The thing, I guess, when it comes to defining personhood, uh, and really how Robinson thinks about it, she actually turns to the philosopher Kant uh, and writes that, quote, a person is someone whose existence has in itself an absolute worth, end quote. So to me, we see there is an, a recognition of intrinsic value there, and we've talked about that previously uh, in previous weeks. But that doesn't mean that there can't also be um, pragmatic qualities. And so let's spend a little time thinking about what this really means uh, in, in a pragmatic and practical sense. The anthropologist Tim Ingold likes to tell a story about caribou. And he tells this story because he's fascinated by the fact that caribou have this habit of stopping to look back at the hunter who is pursuing them. Uh, and it makes them easier, it makes themselves easier to kill. It makes the caribou easier to kill when they stop to look back in this way. And here's the thing that Ingold likes. Biologists have a way of making sense of this kind of um, behavior. And they they think of it as the result of caribou's adaptation to predation by wolves. So they think of it as an evolutionary trait that has um, come to having been pursued by wolves. Uh, and this, this turning back becomes their moment of, of being able to defend themselves when they feel that the critical moment has come. Now, if you ask a Cree hunter to interpret that same behavior, that turning a Cree hunter would tell you that it's evidence that the caribou are giving themselves to the hunters, that they're making a gift of their life for the hunter. And what 
Tim Ingold, the anthropologist, likes to point out is that actually both explanations are entirely reasonable and completely consistent with the worldviews in which they're embedded. They both completely make sense and are are logical ways of explaining this this behavior. And we read about this idea in the Robinson paper as well. What does it mean for an animal to give itself to a hunter? To gift its own body. And actually, you know what? Let's take a step back. What even are gifts? Let's think about that. A gift in anthropological theory is understood as a way of expressing a reciprocal relationship. So what do I mean here? I mean, okay, maybe you can think back to an example in the last few years where you were going to some kind of important social event, maybe a birthday or something like that, and you didn't have a gift, and you scrambled to get a gift at the last minute, or you picked something up on the way, or perhaps if it was a birthday, you decided to pay for their meal instead, or do something of that kind, uh, because it felt unacceptable to not have something to give. An anthropologist would say, you know, this isn't just your generosity uh, or your kindness at work. What you're doing is shoring up a relationship there. So, so ask yourself, if you don't believe me, just think, go through the Rolodex of people you know. Maybe you have someone in your life who, you know, is really good at showing up at dinner parties, but they never bring anything. Doesn't that kind of behavior get on your nerves? Doesn't that kind of drive you crazy? It's because this is a kind of social breach. It's not simply a matter of being, uh, you know, tacky or gauche or, or rude or what have you. There is a refusal there um, of the reciprocal relationship that is offensive. And these kinds of social breaches can range from sort of being irritating to being truly outright offensive. Trust and respect can absolutely be lost if you're not careful. Gained too if you behave uh, in ways that express a commitment to reciprocal relationships. So, you know, we like to say things like, you know, gifts don't have to be expensive. It's the thought that counts, but it's, it's not just that at all. It's also the gift is a chance to perform your commitment to the relationship. That's what counts. It's the performance of commitment to a relationship that counts. And it's through reciprocal exchange. You know, something is given, something else is given later in return, that back and forth between two parties that anthropologists see us perform in our commitments to each other when we build our reputations and we make our relationships with others. So that's a gift. And we're thinking about the animal giving itself as a gift to a hunter. What is being given when an animal gives itself. A big important piece of this is simply the recognition of reciprocal relationship, kinship between caribou and Mi'kmaq persons. 
So that's a very important piece. Another element of what is being given when an animal gifts its life is the idea that honor and respect are owed in exchange. So this isn't simply a kind of one-sided gift. In fact, that that isn't a gift, as we know, uh, because the gift requires the reciprocal relationship. So in exchange, honor and respect for the the kin relationship for others of the species are owed in exchange. And this is really important. There's also specific obligations in how to receive the gift. So you have to completely use the animal body. This is a really important part. There should be no waste because that's a kind of disrespect to the gift that's been given. You also want to give thanks, offerings, or prayers uh, within the Mi'kmaq tradition as a way of honoring that gift. And on a on a, a sort of bigger level, the gift also requires that hunters and communities provide conditions that are necessary for other animals to thrive. So there's a kind of recognition that a a single individual animal life is sacrificed, but that the wellness of the larger community will be protected in exchange. And so, you know, for the Mi'kmaq, animal death comes with these very um, important obligations, and it's human responsibilities to provide those conditions that are necessary for animals to thrive, for the gift to be completely used, for thanks um, and prayer to be offered, and for honor and respect to be given. And in that sense, I think these kinds of obligations really resonate for me with the idea of the rights and responsibilities that Boyd is talking about early on in the rights of nature. So we can make some connections there and start to think about that a little more. Robinson describes historian Calvin Martin's account for Mi'kmaq overhunting uh, that happened during the colonial fur trade as a war against animal kin spurred by settler violence and disease. She doesn't buy it. <laughs> she counters that settler relations usurped those uh, of animal kin that, that the Mi'kmaq had with their animal kin. And she notes that in this time, animals came to be treated as objects uh, as they are widely around the world treated now. How can a group of people whose values and relationships with animals change like this and allow for the near extinction of some of the species on this territory? I think that the answer is in understanding an important transition and a a specific kind of violence that came from the colonial encounter where the gift of the animal became a commodity. Alienation is something that applies to both humans and non-humans. Um, 
So in this example I'm going to be giving you, we'll be thinking about it as it relates to animal bodies, but it's something that human workers can experience too. And it's, it's integral to capitalist systems. Factory workers and products are the archetypal example of alienation. So if you can think about, um, you know, an artisan who uh, throws their own clay uh, pottery and they carve their name into each beautiful piece that they make, you know, um, they, the, the maker and the made object are very particular. No one else could quite make a mug just the way that that person did. Um, whereas under the process of alienation, the worker is actually separated from the product. So you get on a factory line and any worker can produce the same product. If I get sick and uh, I'm taken off the line, another person can replace me. It's not going to change the nature of the, uh, the things being made at all. So again, alienation is that process where workers and commodities are created independent of any kind of sp specifics. There's no particularities there. There's no relationship, certainly, between the maker and what is made. But commodities aren't just kind of lying around waiting to be processed by these generic workers, right? They're made of, th of things, for lack of a better word. They're, they're often made of living things and they actually need to be disentangled from their existing relationships in a living world in order to be made part of the process of capitalist accumulation. So commodities are actually made by tearing things from their life world. They are transformed in this process of alienation into goods, whereas they had been plants or animals or um, soils, minerals, what have you. Um, but, but they are taken from their life world, transformed through this process of alienation and, and are rendered commodities that can then move around the world. Um, and they don't have any relationship, any specific tie to any place anymore at that point. So, you know, I know this is a bit abstract, and and let's let's try to pull it down a, a little bit and make it more particular. Let's try to imagine beaver and marten and pine and humans, and they are all living in Mi'kmaq territory and they're all involved in their world-making projects, being themselves, uh, living in these forests that we now, now call the coast of Nova Scotia, for example. So there they are. There's no price tag to tell us how to think about the value of a beaver pelt. The beaver is a friend. The beaver is a source of food. The beaver is a person who is owed certain things. Um, and the beaver are working in this forest, and the trees are working in this forest, and the humans are working too. 
And together they produce this living, evolving landscape. But the value of that work isn't measured in dollars. It's not strictly economic value. It's, it's cultural value. It's ecological value. And really the thing that I want to stress here is that it's particular. It involves specific species in a specific landscape. And so in those landscapes, under those conditions, you know, the beaver can be a gift. But when the beaver is torn from that life world, when the meaning is changed and through processes of alienation, the beaver is turned into a pelt like any other pelt and shipped around the world, the beaver is no longer a gift. The, the beaver pelt is now a commodity. And I think that's an important transition to understand uh, in terms of thinking about how how many, many cultural groups around the world actually treat animal persons as alienated commodities. Um, and it it shows us how really deeply radical the idea of animal personhood is in refusing that idea of of objects and commodities, how deep it really goes. Um, and it doesn't involve not using the animal body, but rather of honoring and living in relationship with those animals. So I hope the difference there between legal personhood as we started to think about it today and this Mi'kmaq concept of, of animal personhood is, is clear because they are quite different. Uh, they're rooted in different traditions and their implications are different too. All right, so the last thing I'd like to do is turn to the second reading that we did this week from the Boyd book, which is called A Fish, a Dam, and a Lawsuit that Changed the World. So now this chapter depicts this kind of lengthy, many legal battles that are fought to protect the snail darter, this little fish, uh, from the Teleco Dam Development Project. And to me, what's of interest in this chapter, well, it's not quite a fully developed chapter, but this, this text, is that the Endangered Species Act is upheld in appealing to the Supreme Court to protect the species from becoming extinct. And it's a, a groundbreaking court case in that way. And the court actually finds that the act is intended to, quote, halt and reverse the trend towards species extinction, whatever the cost. And that's the note that I would like to end on today. I think a statement like, whatever the cost, implies an intrinsic value of species and their basic right to exist. And the question I'd like to leave you with as we've worked our way through this idea of animal personhood today is what might cultures that have a tradition of commodifying individual animals what might they need to do to find a kind of similar courage 
to face that kind of shift in thinking. So, so if the U.S. Endangered Species Act can recognize the species' right to exist, what might we have to do to to create a similar shift to recognize animal persons and their rights as well? Now that you have uh, a good handle both on the legal idea of animal personhood and uh, on a, a cultural expression of animal personhood, we have a lot to think on there. So with that, I'd like to say thank you very much for listening this week. I look forward to seeing those of you who are able to come to class uh, for the Q&A and our session on Wednesday. Um, take good care. Have a good week. Go out in the woods Gonna find some animals Gonna put them in my plate All in one day All in one day Gonna walk to Isabel, gonna have a comfort me. Isabel spelled with a Z, my sister and me, my sister and me.